you will join me in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 this morning. We have indeed made it through the first chapter, so we continue on our series through Paul's epistle to the church in Rome. The title of our sermon this morning is, Who Are You to Judge? And the key words for our worshipers and training are judge, kindness, and repentance. If you want to follow along in the Blue ESV Bible, you can find our text on page 940, page 940. Well, Sanad Zaghetti is probably not a name that most or any of you are familiar with. He's the former vice president of Hungary's Jobbik Party, which is the mo- is most known as a very outspoken anti-Semitic uh, group, and this man especially among the leaders. He accused the Jews of buying up the country of Hungary and complained about the politicians' Jewishness, accusing the Jewish people of desecrating all of their national symbols. He even founded what was called the Hungarian Guard, a now-banned movement whose members wore attire that bore striking similarity to the uniforms of the Nazis, albeit with a very festive red and green Christmas flair. However, there, there are details that Zaghetti failed to make known about himself that really damaged his credibility in the anti-Semitic crowd. An audio tape eventually emerged that was secretly recorded among Zaghetti and a blackmailer who claimed to have information about Zaghetti's Jewish heritage. Initially, he claimed the tape was fake, but then later he admitted that both of his maternal grandparents were Jewish, and according to Jewish law, that meant that he was a full Jew. Now, to, to add to that, he was booted from the political party when it was found out that both of his grandparents, not only were they Jewish, they were both survivors from concentration camps in Nazi Germany. He was considered a fake. But that's not the end of the story. Once he was considered a fake, it turns out that after his exile from neo-Nazism, Zaghetti decided to become a devout practicing Jew because at that point, I guess, what else is he supposed to do? So he changed his name to David. He regularly wears a yarmulke. He keeps kosher. He goes on regular religious pilgrimages to Israel. And now, believe it or not, I know this will be a surprise, but he's faced with some difficulties of being accepted by the Jewish community as well. But he insists that nobody should judge him until they've walked in his shoes. I was reading uh, this week an article from a few professors at Yale University called, Why Do We Hate Hypocrites? And the writers propose that hypocrites are disliked because their condemnation sends what they call false signals about their personal conduct. When when a hypocrite deceptively suggests that they behave one way or, or are one way, but in reality they behave very differently or they are something completely different altogether. And in this study, they seek to show that when, when people condemn morally what they say is immoral, it is more convincing than when a person simply states that they believe what moral behavior looks like. 
And then they seek to show that people will almost universally judge hypocrites negatively, even more negatively than people who just outrightly make false statements about their personal morality. So if guys like Zagetti just come right out and lie, that would be less hated than those who claim to hate the very people group that he is a part of. Now, we know from Scripture that, that Jesus report, uh, re- repeatedly is, is condemning hypocrisy. It was one of the most common rebukes that he had of the religious leaders of his day. They said one thing, they were very quick to do another. They were quick to condemn the behaviors of others, but when it came to their own, they always found a way to justify it. And when you read the Bible, you sort of get a sense of what the researchers showed, right? It's not just that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were liars. They definitely were. But they were worse than liars. They were hypocrites. And that really digs under our skin, doesn't it? But here's the reality. On some level, all of us have been and sometimes are hypocrites even as Christians. We get this mindset, we have this mentality that as Christians we have some kind of moral superiority over others, over the the world around us, and as we are often quick to condemn the behaviors and and the attitudes and the lifestyles of others, if we were really willing to take a look in the mirror and be honest, we would have to admit that in our self righteousness. Hypocrisy is more at play than we want to admit at all. That we don't actually have moral superiority or goodness, it's simply something we want to portray. And hypocrisy is a nasty sin. It's it's so deeply embedded into the hearts of those who live according to the flesh. And this morning in our text, as we venture into chapter 2, Paul is going to go after our hearts even more. He's not done using God's law to continue to cut us down to our bare, exposed nakedness as men and women so that we can see what we really are at heart, so that we can really get a clear glimpse of what we look like when everything is fully evident for all to see. So let's read together and see how Paul begins to address the heart of mankind and the manifestation of sin in hypocrisy. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, Practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath 
when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, when we get to the end of chapter 1, we, we've seen that even though Paul has hinted earlier in the chapter at where he's going with regard to the glorious truth of the power of the gospel, he quickly turned to diagnosing the human heart, identifying our depravity. When we live upon ourselves, when we deny the truth that we know to be true about God, when we suppress the truth of God in our unrighteousness and our ungodliness, and He held up a mirror to us and He made us look at ourselves at the truth of who we are apart from God and what we are and what we can become as God slowly removes His common grace and allows us to go our own way and to do whatever we want to do according to our flesh. And then you'll remember just last week, Paul begins now, instead of giving us sort of these single shots here and there, he holds down the trigger and blasted us with 21 different realities of our hearts, revealing to us one way after another that we find ourselves in opposition to God's law, reminding us once again, showing us over and over and over again that we are without excuse. And so we finished chapter 1, and we had in our minds, okay, now we're going into chapter 2. We're going to turn the corner a little bit, and maybe Paul will ease off. But notice how he begins with his very first word in verse 1. Therefore, (laughs) which implies at the very least that he's on the same line of thought as he was before. I like what R.C. Sproul wrote about this. He said, if we hope to get that good news now, our hopes are in vain because the apostle is not finished with the bad news yet. Before we get to the gospel, the good news of justification by faith alone, we must be brought kicking and screaming, if necessary, before the holy standard of God's law, so that we might be duly persuaded of our need for the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul's doing, isn't he? He continues to cut us down and cut us down and strip us bare to reveal to us our hearts and our brokenness so that we are infinitely clear of our need of the gospel, which will be revealed in its totality as we come later into chapter 3. And so there are three things that we're going to see from the text this morning. And the first is that hypocrisy is self-condemning. Now, as Paul gets to the end of what we've read in chapter 1, the sense is that there's someone hearing what Paul is saying as he's listing out all of these terrible sins, and that person is sort of over in the corner hearing everything and saying, Amen! Alleluia! Because they see these things in the lives of other people, and more specifically, they see these things in the lives of the Gentiles around them. And so there's this heart of judgment, and there's this desire to see the sins of others called out and condemned. And and so now Paul is very quickly going to slam on their brakes here, and in verse 1 he says, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who judges. It's as if he walked up to them shouting amen and put his hand over their mouths 
and says, stop talking, because now it is your turn. So who is this person or these people that Paul's writing about here? Well, there's some scholarly disagreement, just like every word in the Bible on this first part of chapter 2. But the overwhelming evidence that I think becomes more clear about halfway through the chapter is that Paul's primary focus now is on the Jewish people. That's not to say that what he's writing doesn't apply to Gentiles who are judgmental because it absolutely does. But what seems to be the most clear understanding is that Paul is saying, you Jews, first and foremost, and any other Gentile who may happen to hold this position of self-righteousness and superiority, I'm talking to you now. So just as there are millions, perhaps billions of self-righteous moralizers around the world today who think they are right with God because they are, they are supposedly good people or because they go to church every Sunday or because they teach Sunday school or because their daddy was a deacon or because they, they never drank or cussed or chewed or dated girls who do, God would surely be on their side. And in the very same way, the Jews had that mentality simply because they were Jewish. And they completely understood, they thought, what God was doing through the Old Covenant. And yet they got it all wrong, and so they just assumed it was all about their ethnicity. But why can we assume the Jews are Paul's primary audience here? Well, Paul has continually... Uh, argued as you read through this, and it goes quite a long ways throughout the chapter, this same line of argument. And then in verse 9, he identifies them directly. In verse 17, also he points directly to the Jews. Now further, his statement, every one of you who judges, would have been very much a clear characteristic that would have been understood to be the Jews of the first century. It's undeniably one of the things that they were most known for, that they were constantly judging others around them based on the moral standard they thought they were upholding. And so the Jews believed that simply by virtue of being Jewish, that they were right with God. Regardless of their lives, regardless of their lack of faith, regardless of their behavior. Likewise, the Jews believed that the Gentiles were condemned by God simply by virtue of being Gentiles, regardless of their lives, regardless of their faith, regardless of their behavior. There was an old Jewish tradition that claimed that Abraham himself sat at the gates of hell to keep all of the Jews out of hell, regardless of the lives that they lived. Trypho the Jew once said, they who are the seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, share in the eternal kingdom. There are other writings from the apocryphal books written in the first century, like the Wisdom of Solomon, and it says, So while chastening us, thou scourgest our enemies ten thousand times more. So you can see how easy it was for the Jews to read chapter 1 of what Paul wrote, assuming it was all about the Gentiles, and say, yes, Paul, tell them how it is. You know, we've not really liked you all that much recently, but now 
Tell them how it is. Tell those dirty, nasty Gentiles that they deserve God's wrath and condemnation. And the self-righteousness that just came out of them, they never considered that they could be in the same exact condition, even though their lives looked very much the same as everything that Paul had already described. And so now, Paul begins to strip bare this Jewish attitude that was a complete denial of the foundation of the gospel. And as a result of thinking in that way, they were on a path of terrible consequences in their own lives. They were hypocrites. And hypocrisy is self-condemning. They were digging their own graves. You see that Paul nails them. He says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, you see, we, we all know how our sin can prejudice our hearing of God's Word. How often have you, have you heard a sermon or read a book and immediately you had another person in mind and thought, I really hope they're listening right now. And maybe you hear it and you really want to make sure they pay attention, so you want to get their attention and give out an audible, Amen! It's so easy though, isn't it, to hear sermons or to, to read a book, to pick out what we want, what is agreeable to the way that we want to live. It's palatable to our sensibilities based on what we want to hold on to. And so our natural tendency is to just conclude, that's not a problem for me, but please let me tell you all about Joe. That guy really needs to hear this right now because talk about a capital S sinner. But the, but the reason the person who thinks like that stands condemned is because they practice the very same thing that they condemn. The Jews practice the very same things. The unbelieving Gentiles practice, and you and I very easily can see in ourselves that we practice the very same things that we use to so quickly condemn others. And God sees the sins of the heart, and His response is condemnation. Our problem is the very same problem that Jesus was confronting in the Sermon on the Mount. How quickly do we rush to harshly judge the man or the woman who commits adultery when we've lusted in our hearts? How hate-filled are we when it comes to the one who murders when we've had unrighteous anger in our hearts? How quickly will we condemn the one who steals from a store when we've stolen time from our boss? And on and on and on. Now, let's be clear. This does not mean that we should not identify and call out sin for what it is. We must. But we, what we must not do is call out sin from a, a lofty position of assumed moral superiority, or worse yet, from a place where we condemn the other person for doing the very same thing that we ourselves do. Surely, we're the standard that we could only speak 
on sins that we ourselves have never or will never commit, there would be no preaching, there would be no discussion of accountability. That's not the issue at play. But we must always remember, like all religious moralizers, unlike the Jews of Paul's day, that we come beside other sinners, just like us, to confront the sin in them, that is very much like the sin within us. Not as their moral betters, but as fellow travelers on the journey. The hypocrite has no thought of, of coming alongside others because the hypocrite does not understand the nature and extent of sin. They look only at external things, but God examines the heart. The hypocrite redefines sin in his life. He looks at it, he points at others, and while others lie and cheat, the hypocrite tells half-truths, or they stretch the truth. Others steal, the hypocrite only borrows. Others are unrighteously prejudiced, but we simply have convictions. And the reality is that the hypocrite is so self-focused that, that they really have no idea that they're hypocritical because they would never stop long enough to think about what they are doing that is wrong because they're so focused so often on all that they think they are supposedly doing right. They refuse to see that they are doing the very same things for which they condemn others. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12, this is after King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then in an attempt to cover up her pregnancy as a result of that, she's pregnant with David's child. He had her husband Uriah brought in from the battlefield in hopes that he would come and see his wife and sleep with her, and then it would be assumed that he got her pregnant and, and it was his child. But Uriah was an honorable man, and because all of his fellow brethren of war were still on the battlefield, he refused to go in and lay with his wife. And so David, continuing to dig the hole, had Uriah sent back out onto the battlefield, onto the front lines to ensure that he would be killed in battle. Later, Nathan, the prophet, came along and told the king the tale of a rich man who took a poor man's sheep, which the poor man loved. And the sheep was stolen, and it was slaughtered, and it was fed to the man's guests. And David was horrified, and he responded, he said, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He, he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan looked him in the eye and said, David, you are the man. And trust me, this was not Nathan saying to David, David, you the man. Is that what he meant? <laughs> no, it was, it was him pointing to David's hypocrisy. He was guilty, as guilty could be. And yet his sin was far greater by any measure than a man stealing a sheep. But when presented with this story, he was 
enraged. He was blind to his own condition. So you see, like this, the hypocrite is blind to his own sins. He forgets his own sins, and he considers others far worse than he is himself. Some years ago, a woman who was teaching literature at a university decided to have all of her students read the Sermon on the Mount. None of them had, and half of them had never even actually heard of it in the first place. It was all fresh for them. And so they read it, and they all absolutely hated it. This is a typical comment that she got in her response papers. Students said, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I have to be perfect. They said, this is absolutely ridiculous. Nobody can live like that. And then she said, that's okay. And she listened to them. And then she asked them this question every time. She said, aren't these, though, the kind of people you want around you? Don't you want people who are so loving they don't resent and they're never indifferent, so generous that they're always grateful? Aren't these the kind of people you want around you? Aren't these the kinds of things you want in other people because you demand them of other people? And they all got very quiet. In other words, I am very angry if you try to hold me to this standard, but on the other hand, I hold everybody else to this standard. And therefore, you are condemned by your own mouth. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Because the law of God, if you learn how to read it, is after a kind of person, a kind of heart, a life of absolute beauty, not just an external behavior, but the heart, the motivation, the attitude of a person. So with all this unrighteous judgment, Paul announces the clear message, which was very much the same message that Jesus had. As you judge others, the very same measure by which you judge will be used to judge you. And you know that you, by it, will be condemned. Very simply, if we condemn other people for doing the very things that we do, then by condemning them, we are showing our awareness of the wrongness of that activity. And so we are condemning ourselves. The hypocrite wants to be able to stand in moral superiority over others, but the Lord will have none of it. Hypocrisy is self-condemning. And so Paul shows us the results of that self-condemning hypocrisy in our second point this morning, which is simply this, that God hates hypocrisy. Look again, beginning in verse 2, we know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, notice that Paul is really emphasizing what he's been emphasizing over and over and over again throughout this epistle, namely that you and I are without excuse. And here he's showing us God's righteous concern for justice. The judgment of God 
rightly falls on those who practice such things. If there was a legitimate excuse, if there was a legitimate way the hypocrites could be found without sin by being judgmental and hypocritical, God would be unjust to judge them. But the whole point of the passage is the point that, in fact, we are without excuse. In other words, when the judgment of God falls, it will be because God is just. No one will have any legitimate objections. No one. Do you suppose, Paul asks, that you will escape the judgment of God? The religious people are just as guilty as the sinners of chapter 1. The Jews are just as guilty as the Gentiles. And in the first century, that was everybody. There was nobody else. God hates hypocrisy. But look what else Paul points out. He also points out in the midst of all of this that God is kind and God is patient. Now, I don't want to steer too far away from the argument here, but I do think this is an important observation. Many might read this passage coming in from chapter 1 and think that God is only and always judgmental and, and the condemnation of sin is always, is always ever-present. And while God condemns and judges sin, look how else Paul describes God here. He writes of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience in verse 4. In other words, God is not vengeful and wrathful and just sprinkling a little kindness on top every now and then. No, this means that God has an overabundance of kindness to pour out on us, and He does pour it out on us, and He's doing that right now. In this very moment, as we gather here together today, we are experiencing the kindness of God. If for no other reason that we get to hear from God regarding our own hearts and His standard and what our great need is, hopefully, He's able, and He is, to break through our hard and impenitent hearts, which He has mentioned already, to reveal to us the greatest need that we all have in the world. And that is to recognize our sinfulness, to recognize our hypocrisy, and to rest upon Christ alone. And so God's not just sprinkling in some kindness. This is who God is. He is kind. He is patient. And so what does that mean in light of the hypocritical reality of the Jews that Paul is writing to, and in light of the hypocritical lives that you and I can live? It means that God's justice does not demand that the full punishment of our sins comes to us immediately. Isn't that merciful? Isn't that kind? God shows us His mercy and His kindness, and the result is God's patience. Paul writes that God endures months and sometimes years and sometimes decades with our stubbornness and resistance and our lack of repentance. If we were to be punished as soon as we sin, not one of us would have made it out of the womb. The very fact that we have breath in our lungs right now is revealing of the great kindness of God. He could have done away with us immediately. He could have taken us to judgment. But here we are. Here we are. 
And, and that should be an amazing thing to each and every one of us. But lest you forget, Paul reminds us what this kindness and patience is for, namely to lead us to repentance. You see, the proper response to being exposed as a hypocrite, the proper response to having our sins revealed is not to say, big deal, God will forgive me anyway because He's merciful and patient. No. The proper response is repentance. Don't interpret God's kindness with approval. There used to be a saying I heard all the time in the army, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. And it's the very same thing that Paul is saying here. Don't mistake the fact that God is being patient with the fact that all of your sins simply do not matter. He's never fooled. This is why His judgment will be rendered with unerring, terrible perfection. He sees all in Psalm 139.4, David said, Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. God knows the real intention behind every spoken word. You may be able to say something and say, Well, I didn't mean it that way, but God knows your heart. He knows you meant it that way. You may be able to fool others, but you will never fool God. He knows instantly and effortlessly everything about us. A man may be a good person according to worldly standards. He may be upright and outwardly moral, sure of his goodness. But if he dies without Christ, Christ will say to him, you therefore have no excuse. And his judgment will be perfect, especially in light of the fact that God has been exceedingly patient with all of us. And so what's the result? The final thing we see this morning is that I'm not okay and you're not okay. <laughs> Notice how he ends in verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, the hypocrisy led to its end. The Jews, lest they repented, would find the righteous judgment of God revealed against them. And you and I, dear friends, if we have lived our lives presuming upon God's kindness, and if we have refused to repent, we too will face that terrible day of wrath. In the 1970s, there was this enormous best-selling book by Thomas Harris, and it was called, I'm Okay, You're Okay. It was a little self-help book, and it was on top of the New York Times bestseller list for up to two years. Later in the 1990s, a woman by the name of Wendy Kaminer wrote a devastating critique of the whole self-help movement, and the name of her book was, I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional. It's a tremendous critique. Basically, she showed how narcissistic that whole idea of being okay was. She wrote, how in the world can you say this is mental health to say I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, yet out there in the world there is all the blood of the innocent crying out from the ground for justice. There's genocide, there's terrorism, there's all this awful stuff. How in the world can you say it's the sign of mental health to go into the world and say everybody's okay, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay? That's silly, that's narcissism. She absolutely deconstructed the whole idea. 
And yet, about 10 years later, after she showed how really silly it is to say, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, she came back with another book and showed that she was kind of in a bind now because her whole point was, hey, with all the injustice, with all of the innocent bloodshed, how can you say everybody is okay? But she had to come back with another book And she was very critical of what she called the hard right because she saw a lot of people saying, yeah, there's evil out there, but we have to to bring back the death penalty. We have to go to war. So she suddenly saw all these people saying, I'm okay, and the rest of you are no way okay. In fact, that was the subtitle of her book. The New York Times gave the book a subtitle, I'm okay, and you are nowhere near okay. So she wrote that the trouble is, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. That's narcissistic. But to say, I'm okay, and I have the truth, you are all evil, and I'm going to punish you, that's how you get death camps, that's how you get superior races, that's how you get superior persons. You're the inferior person, and I'm the superior person. She says that's moralism, which is just as bad as narcissism. So narcissism is, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. Moralism is, I'm okay, and you're not okay. But wait a minute. So she was just saying, this is narcissism, and that's bad, and moralism is bad, but what's left? Well, there's masochism. (laughs) I'm not okay, and everybody else is. Of course, that's not right, so what's left? Well, at the same time as this book coming out, there was a very prominent minister, many of you know who it is, a great Bible teacher named John Gerstner. And he was speaking on this, and he referenced this book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, and he says, how does this compare to the message of the Bible? Then he told a story. It was about a time that him and his wife had taken a trip to Asia, and they were actually in Kashmir, and at one point they went on an excursion on a little boat. It was he and his wife and the boatman. The boatman really didn't know much English at all, and Gerstner's a grandson. And on their way back from the excursion, they were, they were starting near shore, and they actually bumped into another boat. And when they bumped that boat, there was a fair amount of water that kind of splashed in, and everybody got wet up to their knees. And the boatman started getting very, very agitated, and John Gerstner said, okay, but it's just a little bit of water. It's all right. We're okay. Don't get upset. We're okay. A couple of minutes later, the man was was getting even more agitated, and John was thinking he was very superior. He said this poor man either has an ego problem or he said, don't worry. We're okay. Then finally they came. They got almost to the dock He got really agitated, and John Gerstner said once again, we're okay. And the boat man looked at him, and he said, you're not okay. I'm not okay. And he pushed them out of the boat onto the dock. He threw his grandson up there. He jumped onto the dock, and at that minute, the boat sunk down into the water. And John Gerstner had never seen that there was actually a hole in the boat. The boatman had seen it. John Gerstner had not seen it, and if he had just stayed there one more second, he would have gone down with it. And Gerstner said after all of this, I realize that's the message of the Bible. I'm not okay, 
and you're not okay. Do you realize what this means? It's not moralism of saying, I'm okay, and you're not okay. It's not narcissism like saying, I'm okay, and you're okay. Not when there's injustice in the world. Not when there's dysfunctionality. It's not the masochism of saying, I'm not okay, but everyone else is. No, what the Bible says is we are all sinners. Every last one of us. We are all lost apart from Christ. Nobody has the right to look down on anybody else. We're all in trouble. We're all alienated from God. No one has the right to be trampling upon and exploiting exploiting other people. We all need God. I'm not okay. You're not okay. And if you don't know that, you're going to go to the bottom because you cannot see the hole in the boat. That's what's so unique about the gospel. There really isn't any other position like that. And it's the right one. The good news of the gospel is that it's for hypocrites like all of us. You may have heard all about yourself in the Scriptures this morning. I'll tell you, it's not an easy thing to to sit and contemplate the true reality of hypocrisy in our own hearts. But when we think about it, when we're forced to look in that mirror, it's a painful reality. And yet, in the midst of that painful reality, the Bible speaks loudly and clearly to us that yes, you are a hypocrite, and yes, your hypocrisy deserves the anger and judgment of God, but no, that is not the end of the story. Everything Paul is showing us is leading us to this great reality that he has already once mentioned, that the gospel is the power of God onto transformation to transform our hearts, to make us new creations in Christ. And so the Scriptures all pointing us to this reality that by faith, as we come to God by His grace, as we trust in Him as our Savior, as our Lord, as the greatest treasure that we can have in this life, that even though all of us are sinners, even though that each and every one of us has acted and lived in hypocrisy, that Christ has died for us, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life free of hypocrisy, that Jesus Christ lived a life free of lies, that Jesus Christ lived a life fulfilling the law of God to perfection because you and I were required to do it, but we can't. This text alone reveals to us that we cannot and we have not and we never would and we never will. But Jesus did. And even still, having lived a perfect life, the only one in this world who did not deserve death, He died on a cross on our behalf to take upon Himself the full weight of the wrath of God that if we trust in Him by faith, that the penalty for our sin, the penalty of our hypocrisy need not be paid by you and I because it's already been paid by Christ. That He has made the payment in full. And so friend, maybe you don't know Christ this morning. Would you come to Christ by faith? 
The sweetness of Christ is knowing that He is irrevocably for us and will never leave us or forsake us. The sweetness of Christ is knowing that He knows who I am and what I am and despite that has still lived a life for me and died a death for me and has been raised from the dead that I might live forever and ever without the full weight of the penalty of the wrath of God that I deserve. And so Jesus invites you to come and to rest in Him. And for you, believer, maybe you hear of yourself this morning, and if you're honest, thinking about your own life, that you realize there are things in your life that you think, that you believe, that you do, that are hypocritical. What does Paul remind us to do as believers here this very morning? Repent. God is kind. God is patient. And that's leading to repentance. Don't hide from Him. You cannot hide. Don't run from Him. Draw near to Him, and He will receive you lovingly, graciously, kindly, as He always had, and He always will.